You are entering the Freedom Hut. A case study in elite panic. San Francisco and the 1918 flu. Do full lockdowns actually save lives? The New York City antibody test. We've got updates for you on that. Plus a sting operation in Texas for painting nails. General Flynn was set up. And why were there no Sunday questions about Biden's sexual assault allegation? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I want to review that timetable because when I heard Mitch on the floor the other day, he was saying we have all these things in here that we ask for. No, you rejected. No, you rejected. And speaking of Mitch, what's gotten into him? Well, it's an indication. The president is asking people to inject Lysol into their lungs, and Mitch is saying that um, uh, states should go bankrupt. It's a clear, visible, within 24 hours, of how the Republicans reject science and reject governance. If you don't believe in science and you don't believe in governance, that's their approach. And we do not. We don't want any more government that we need, but we know that governance has a role. And we know that science has a role. And without science in our decision making, uh, we are not going to be on a very successful path. Nancy Pelosi is a stupid person's idea of what an intelligent politician sounds like. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you very much for joining. I trust you had a a relaxing and uh, rejuvenating weekend, or at least I hope you did. Some of you, I'm sure, were on uh, on the work line doing things, making sure that you were on the front lines and uh, making sure that food is delivered, making sure that people are getting taken care of in hospitals, doing all the things that... uh, we need to have happening to keep this country going. But for the rest of you, I will have my thoughts for you on Netflix and some of the latest there. But first, uh, I, I want to get into where we are right now in this whole process, because, you know, Pelosi there telling us about how there's no science, there's no governance for the Republicans. H- how can someone say something that is so devoid of underlying facts that is just so bizarrely disconnected from reality and and no one seems to bat an eyelash about it. It's certainly no Democrats do. They have no problem with this whatsoever. They view the whole thing as entirely, uh, entirely justified. There's no governance. There's no science with Republicans. The president is standing up for two hours a day. He actually might not be doing it quite so much and, and, and for so long uh, pretty soon, because I think people are feeling like he might be a little bit overexposed with all this. But the president is doing these things. He's having these press conferences and uh, they're they're claiming that he does not give he does not have, you know, a governance going on. He doesn't listen to science. He's got scientists that are basically running the briefings. OK, it's the scientists. They're the ones that are actually doing the briefings for the most part. And he just gets up there and tries to bring it all together. Um, but this is the kind of stupidity that we expect from the Democrat left, the same Democrat left that has put now credibly accused sexual assaulter Joe Biden and man who is perpetually confused and deeply unimpressive. He's the answer. Sure. These people are unserious. The Democrats, they've always been unserious. Uh, they never learn and they will never change. So we need to understand that they haven't gotten better because we're in a crisis. They haven't gotten more honest. This is just who they are. 
So we will have to accept that, I suppose, as much as one can while trying to defeat them and do everything we can to make sure they do not once again wield power. I had a fascinating read for you uh, over the weekend that I picked up uh, by James uh, Meggs, I believe. I, I, I've never heard of or read anything by him. And uh, I had to Ben Dominic, who was sharing this from the, from the Federalist. This was in Commentary magazine, though. And it's Elite Panic versus the Resilient Populace is the title of the piece by James, James Meggs here. And it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I highly recommend it. We'll, we'll share it uh, on some of our social platforms so you can see this piece. He talks about how in 1964, North America had its strongest recorded earthquake just off the coast of Alaska on March 27th, 1964. So a month ago today, back in 1964, uh, the shaking from the magnet or a month earlier in the year, the shaking from this quake was 9.2 on the Richter scale and it shook for four and a half minutes. He, he writes that the tectonic forces reshaped Alaska's coastline and triggered tsunamis that wiped out villages and claimed lives as far south as California. Anchorage, which was the main city, uh, the, the closest city to the epicenter of the earthquake, uh, was home to 100,000 people and buildings were just completely destroyed all over Anchorage. I mean, just collapsed, caved in. Buildings um, were rumbling down the sides of embankments after there was just earth moving, uh, the soil moving beneath them. There was a brand new J.C. Penney department store that was collapsing uh, in, you know, parts of it were just completely falling apart. I've, I've been to Anchorage and it's a it's a it's a nice town. I actually liked it there. And I know we're on K.E.N.I., which is our wonderful affiliate up in Anchorage that actually comes up in this story. So big high five to K.E.N.I., our, our Anchorage, Alaska affiliate for the Buck Saxon show, because back in 1964, that was the station that people were turning to for information. That was the, the first line for folks in the Anchorage area to find out, hey, what's going on? Who's who's missing? Where do they need help? But officials immediately, and this is what this piece in Commentary Magazine talks about, officials began worrying about the response from people. They thought to themselves, wait a second, there's going to be looting. There's going to be rioting. This is terrible. What can we do? And so they deputized a number of people on the spot, including giving some of them firearms to say, hey, prevent all this looting in the post-disaster environment that we think is going to happen. So uh, this is where there were the, there were concerns that people would, quote, behave like frightened and unsatisfied children and that there could be uh, a mass outbreak of hysterical neurosis among the civilian population. That was what the police and some of the authorities that some of the authorities in the city assumed would happen. Um, and the author here points out that there are plenty of counterexamples in history uh, the British response during the Blitz in World War II, the Japanese response after the Fukushima nuclear reactor disaster, which was initially thought to perhaps be much, much, it was believed to be much, much worse than it ended up being uh, in terms of the amount of radiation that was let loose. Uh, but mo the, the author of this piece cites a book 
The book is called This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City, A Voice That Held It All Together. And uh, this is in Anchorage. This is about what happened in Anchorage during this period. Um, and Chance, I believe, was a radio, TV and radio announcer, Jeannie Chance, a minor celebrity in Alaska. The earthquake caught her in her car, quote, running down a downtown, running a downtown errand with her sons. She saw the mangled body in the rubble. Cars were buried in debris. One station wagon had been crushed almost flat by a concrete slab. Chance could hear a woman's voice coming from inside. A crowd of people was trying to save her, clawing at the slab. Then a man stepped forward to organize the effort. Somehow two tow trucks were located. They were able to split the slab partially in two. Another man climbed into the breach with a cutting torch and carved a hole in the vehicle's roof. The woman was pulled free, gravely injured but alive. She would survive. Chance later marveled that all the people involved in the operation were mere passers-by, impromptu volunteers, and yet they functioned as a team. Though she didn't know it at the time, this dynamic was being replicated all over the city. Chance made her first broadcast as soon as her radio station, KENI, came back on air. End quote. That's right, KENI, the same station that folks up in Alaska are listening to us on right now, up in Anchorage. But... That was the station that she was able to use to get the word out to people about rescue efforts. Now, remember, there was the official rescue effort and there was the civilian rescue effort that was going on. People all over Anchorage back in 1964 doing everything that they could to try to save lives, try to pick people out of the rubble. And it was impromptu. It was on the spot. Um, Chance, quote, set up a broadcast desk at the Anchorage Public Safety Building, home to the city's police and fire department. City employees hurried in and out and civilian volunteers as well. Everyone, it seemed, had a message they needed a chance to read on the air. A high-voltage power line is down on Northern Lights Boulevard. There's a large crevice on Seward Highway. Both highways out of Anchorage are closed. There wasn't much comfort in the news Chance and her fellow broadcasters were conveying. But Anchorage residents remember those voices as a lifeline. Information, one would later say, is a form of comfort. Another called KENI, our only beacon of light in a night of terror. End quote. Fascinating, isn't it? So the official response from the authorities was what people would call in the disaster study area, elite panic. The elites right off the bat generally assume, not always, but will generally assume that people will react terribly the moment that their sense of normalcy is shattered. Otherwise, good, decent, law abiding people uh, will either be terrified or will act out badly and will not be. You you cannot count on them to do uh, helpful things. And it's up to the authorities to make all the decisions for them. I think you're starting to see a little bit of a, a little bit of a comparison here, aren't you? Elite panic is when the authorities believe that citizens will become dangerous. So, quote, they begin to focus on controlling the public rather than on addressing the disaster itself. They clamp down on information, restrict freedom of movement and devote unnecessary energy to enforcing laws they assume are about to be broken. These strategies don't just waste resources. They also undermine the public's capacity for resilient behaviors. In other words, nervous officials can actively impede the ordinary people trying to help themselves and their neighbors. End quote. Yeah, you don't say. So here, the city of Alaska, uh, of Anchorage in Alaska with 100,000 residents gets hit with an over 9.0 earthquake, which is an absolutely stunningly devastating her uh, I keep wanting to say earthquake uh, hurricane earthquake it's stunningly devastating and yet they were able to band together the people of Anchorage 
uh, with, a, with a little help of coordination at the top, courtesy of our affiliate KENI, uh, they were able to direct people. And do you know how many ended up actually dying in that earthquake? Five. Now, that's obviously a tragedy for those five people and their families. But from what could have happened, given all the people that were picked out of rubble, it's really astonishing. But human beings, especially in good, healthy societies, which ours is, despite all the criticisms that we can have for America, despite all of our shortcomings here and there, overall, we are a good country filled with good people. When we're given the opportunity, we will more often than not do good things. But the government doesn't always seem to think so. And this is how you have sting operations against nail salons. This is how people can be chased down on the beach for being completely alone and going for a jog. This is how you have some of the absolutely absurd enforcement of regulations that they say are meant to keep us safe, meant to keep us healthy. But no serious person could ever think that they would have that effect. Why are they doing these things? Why are they putting us through this? These are questions that we should we should demand answers to, because right now we're being told something that's very troubling. It was a few weeks ago that the data, the data dictated that we had to do whatever the government told us and that we could not be counted on. We could not be counted on to be responsible citizens who would take mitigation measures ourselves, allow businesses to adapt and create safer environments but still able to still be able to continue in business no mandates lockdowns across the board across the country well now we have data about those lockdowns and it does not look good for the across the board lockdown chorus there are some places new york being the most notable one where it might have been justified because of the extreme nature of the infection but even then only justified for a short period of time but in other places the lockdown has been if anything counterproductive and if you look at Europe, where they've had essentially a, a control group with Sweden versus other countries in Europe, Sweden is in the middle of the pack. Sweden is not worse off. In fact, it's better off on a per capita basis than Italy, than Spain, than the UK. It's slightly worse off than Finland or Denmark. But they didn't shut down their society. And everyone's pointing out the economic impact of it there and saying, well, their economy still got hurt. And you hear this now. Well, the economy won't come back online because people are too scared. Well, you know what would make people less scared? If they started to see other people go to stores and be okay, and other businesses start to operate, and life start to return to normal. Not normal right away, but normal in phases. That has to happen. That's where we are. And we need to start having authorities give the American people greater latitude to make good decisions to be helpful to each other in our day-to-day -day lives and stop this insanity of everything that they say must be done and not be questioned because they have the answers. They've already shown us they don't have the answers. They absolutely do not. The data was used to tell us stay inside or else weeks ago. Now the data shows that in many places and in many cases that was not necessary and perhaps counterproductive. Where's the focus on that now? Where are all of our so-called firefighter journos running toward running toward the flames for the, the betterment of our republic? They got no answers for this, do they? We're heading into a different phase, my friends. We had we had demands for government action because people were scared and the government saw an opportunity to use its power. And now we have overreach, ineptitude 
and a complete lack of accountability for bad decisions that government is making. Enough is enough. Let's actually start making some good decisions and let's allow the American people to be a bigger part of that process. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Again, on this wonderful piece in Commentary Magazine by James Meggs, uh, it's really a fascinating story, and I love it. It's at the center of it all. I mean, there's the everyday heroes who are using blowtorches and pickup trucks impromptu. Just, oh, I happen to have my blowtorch in the back. I happen to have, you know, earth-moving equipment that I can use to save somebody from the rubble all over Anchorage back in 1964. And also, it's kind of cool that the Coordination and Operations Center for this whole thing was our affiliate for the Buck Saxon Show in Anchorage, KENI. So they must feel pretty, pretty darn good about that. Uh, but, uh, but there's other, other more recent examples, too, the piece goes into the uh, situation in uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. There, was, there were all these stories about, oh, the, the horrific violence and looting, and, and there, there were some bad things that happened there. But, you know, there was also a lot of coming together, a lot of community. I mean, the Cajun Navy was just amazing. Hundreds of boats, private citizens are saying, I'm there, man. I'm, I'm, I'm showing up and I'm helping everybody I can help. Hundreds of boats uh, getting people out of floodwaters and saving lives and, and coordinating with. And this is not to say that first responders are not essential doing incredible work. Of course they are. But while the first responders are doing things, there are also a lot of citizens, a lot of civilians who step up and do important things. They often work together. And the impulse of authority, though, and this, is, this brings us back to elite panic, is, oh, the people cannot be trusted, so we must have a very firm hand with them. And this is particularly the impulse of unaccountable bureaucracies and regulatory boards and bodies, things like the FDA, which in the early days of this coronavirus pandemic, the FDA slowed down testing because they couldn't figure out that the regulations they had were not uh, were not necessary, given the scope and, and the re, the problems that we're facing right now with uh, coronavirus. They couldn't they couldn't figure it out in time. So they slowed down the whole testing process. Again, the elites panic while the people actually try to do something to help each other. Remember that. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. No, and it's outrageous for Senator McConnell to even suggest that. The fact of the matter is our general fund budget, when adjusted for inflation, is the same size it was during when Richard Nixon was our president. We have been incredibly smart stewards. We have not made some of the investments I think we should have as a state because of, you know, this this, um, you know, artificially low number that we've been working with. But the fact of the matter is that for Senator McConnell to suggest that is incredibly um, dangerous. And I don't think that the vast majority of governors in this country, Republican and Democratic, would agree with him. He's wrong and we need Congress to step up and help states because this pandemic it's because of this global pandemic that we are all having to make tough decisions. We need the federal government to have our backs. Governor Whitmer of Michigan has become among the best known of the of the overreach folks in all of this. I think that's fair to say she is somebody who has come to our attention for being willing to have the most the most uh, petty tyranny in the most obvious ways as a as being a governor. 
Uh, you did have that interview that Tucker Carlson did some weeks ago with uh, the uh, Governor Murphy of New Jersey in which he's like, well, that's above my pay grade. Why, why did you suspend the Bill of Rights, Governor Murphy? Well, that's above my pay grade. That was the conversation with Tucker. And th- to that, one would say, well, no, it's not because you're the governor <laughs> and you have a responsibility to protect the, the Bill of Rights and you cannot override it as a state official. But we've seen a lot of that. And I, I want to remind you all now that we were told certain things about why we had to just accept this. We were told this as a country. We were told this for really all 50 states. There were only a handful that did not go with statewide lockdowns. And now we have more data and more information. And we're supposed to forget that we were told things that weren't true to take actions that did not protect us, that did not help us or save us. And you would think that this would be a point for the the journos to stand up and say, well, hold on a minute. Maybe we need to rethink some of this. But nope. Because the lockdown consensus has also become very much melded in with the anti-Trump left and the critics of the Trump administration. So lockdown has become political in a way that you, you can't you can't avoid this. You can't pretend that it's not happening because this is, in fact, a primary uh, a primary goal for a lot of the people who are pushing for lockdowns across the country to make sure that the Trump administration uh, suffers because they, what they're able to do here is they're able to put all the blame on Trump, feel like they're saving lives in the process and ensure that there is catastrophic economic damage. Now, people could say, well, Buck, why do they do this? Why do they do this in Europe? And I say, yeah, why? Why do they do this in Europe, considering that European countries are opening up right now? So the, so the lockdown forever, folks, are just wrong. I mean, they're 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 not doing this in Europe much longer. They are opening up schools. They are opening up businesses. And I keep pointing to Sweden, not because I have some obsession with Stockholm, uh, but you know, I don't have Stockholm syndrome. Uh, but no, because the the Swedes were the only ones who were able to be a control group for all the measures that we were told needed to happen. They didn't do it. And they basically went through what the countries that did do it, meaning the lockdown uh, they had the very similar outcome. In fact, a better outcome than the countries with the most severe restrictions uh, like Italy and Spain. What we really see is, if nothing else, by the time the authorities recognize that a lockdown is needed, it's too late. And now what we're seeing is by the time it's clear or it should be clear to everybody, the lockdown's gone on too long. The authorities don't want to lift it. That is where we are right now. Uh, so this brings me to a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal. Do lockdowns save many lives? In most places, the data say no. The speed with which officials shutter the economy appears not to be a factor in COVID deaths. This is a piece uh, by uh, Joe, Malcha- Joe Malchow, Yanan Weiss, and T.J. Rogers. And here's what they say. Uh, here, here's the, the, the basics of it. Sweden, Sweden is fighting coronavirus with common sense guidelines that are much less economically destructive than the lockdowns in most U.S. states. Since people over 65 account for about 80% of COVID-19 deaths, Sweden asked only seniors to shelter in place rather than shutting down the rest of the country. And Sweden had no pediatric deaths. It didn't shut down elementary and middle, middle schools. Uh, Sweden's containment measures are less onerous than America's, so it can keep them in place longer to prevent COVID-19 from recurring. 
Sweden did not shut down stores, restaurants, and most businesses, but it did shut down the Volvo automotive plant, which has since reopened, while the Tesla plant in Fremont, California, was shuttered by police and remains closed. How did the Swedes do? They suffered 80 deaths per million 21 days after crossing the one per million threshold level. With 10 million people, Sweden's death rate, without a shutdown and massive unemployment, is lower than that of the seven hardest-hit U.S. states. Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Louisiana, Connecticut, Michigan, New York, and New Jersey. All of which, except Louisiana, shut down in three days or less. Despite stories about high death rates, Sweden is in the middle of the pack, comparable to France, better than Italy, Spain, and the U.K., worse than Finland, Denmark, and Norway. And older people in care homes accounted for half of Sweden's deaths. We should cheer for Sweden to succeed, not ghoulishly bash them. They may prove that many aspects of the U.S. shutdown were mistakes, ineffective but economically devastating, and point the way to correcting them. What have I been telling you all along? How many times have you heard me talk about Sweden on this show? And that there was a rooting against it from people in the media. Oh, the Swedes are heading to disaster. Oh, the Swedes are going to learn the most painful lesson. Reckless what they're doing there. We were pressuring them meaning that the, the U.S. media, uh, the international news media organizations, they were pressuring the Swedes to do what all these other countries were doing with the lockdowns. And now we're, now we're far enough in this and have enough data to know that that was wrong. There, was no be- there would be no benefit for the Swedes to do the lockdown. And now people are telling me, well, the economy in Sweden's been hit. First of all, okay, it's been hit. Does anyone think that it's... Is it a better thing or a worse thing for some businesses to be open and some businesses to have revenue in an economy? Better to have no businesses open, no revenue? So clearly, just apply basic sense and logic to this, clearly it would be worse for the economy if they had done what all these other places had done. And there is no evidence to suggest that it is markedly worse off from a health and safety and mortality rate. This is now we have we have our control group and we have our answer. We did not need to shut down all 50 states in this country or close to all 50 states in this country with lockdowns. New York probably needed to be locked down, perhaps the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. And there needed to be precautions put in place elsewhere. This is not this is not a oh, we don't need mitigation or we don't need to take this seriously. Of course not. That's absurd. That's a straw man. No one really thinks that no one's arguing for that. But tell people that they can't operate businesses. Tell people they can't go to parks, they can't go into uh, public places where they're able to maintain distance and they're in open air. It's absurd. We're shutting down parks at a time when fresh air and open space are essential for mental and physical health. There's been so much wrong here, and only some people have been willing to ask questions along the way. And I'll tell you, even I tired after a few days of being told that I don't care about all the death, that I don't care about, you know, a, a stupid, vicious, just utterly moronic position that people were taking about anyone who would ask questions by looking at the data, because we make we make decisions as a society all the time about what is acceptable risk. There's a different thing, too, than risk versus the the certainty of something happening right we 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 take we let people drive cars and, we, and everyone hates this example oh because it's not a bad example we let people drive cars not be not not saying okay well we're gonna have you know we, we know that the following people are gonna die from this but we let people drive cars knowing that it is possible that people will die from this 
you know, it is possible that there will be additional cases and casualties from COVID-19 once we begin reopening. It's also possible that there really aren't. But we're willing to take that risk because of all the factors involved. This is life. This is how this is how adults make decisions. And we know that you can't have a lockdown forever. So why do we keep hearing people say, oh, no, keep it going as long as you have to. There was a transition. They tried to transition the lockdown consensus makers out there at the major news organizations. And, you know, there was there was this culture of the lockdown that you were seeing from celebrities. You know, here I am in my Malibu mansion and I'm telling everybody you must stay locked down. That's your civic duty. There was a culture of this that was that was pervasive. But initially it was don't allow the hospitals to be overwhelmed. You know, there are hospitals now in New York, uh, another piece in The Wall Street Journal about this. Syracuse, for example, a, a, you know, a good sized city in New York State. The hospitals are mostly empty, empty. No one can get care. No one is, is able, was able to do elective surgeries of any kind or do preventative uh, preventative visits to the hospital. You know, I mean, I sit here and I wonder, you know, at what point are we going to be able to assess all the people who have teeth rotting out of their head? You know, but you might say, oh, well, who cares about that? Actually, a really bad tooth infection can become very dangerous. Uh, people don't necessarily realize this, but dental health can turn into like whole body health real fast. How many people haven't had preventative cancer screenings? How many people haven't had surgeries, you know, earlier interventions that might have led to better outcomes as a result of this? There are so many consequences to the shutdown which was really just a, a policy of panic. Isn't it fascinating? We started out this hour talking about the elites panicking because they say we're going to panic, right? That's what elite panic is. Oh my gosh, the hoi polloi will be raging in the streets. What will we ever do? And then their response is what the panic actually comes from. That, that is the panic, telling us all to stay home indefinitely and not really knowing how they're going to reintegrate us back into our normal lives. How could you have a, a response more steep in panic than that? It's crazy, isn't it? And we now see this. We see the numbers. We have the data and the data does not support what we've been told all along we should be doing across the board. Maybe in New York, because we got hit so badly because this place where I'm coming to you now, I mean, I, I'm here. I'm living it. I'm around it all the time. You know, I tried to go into a store last night and my mask wasn't covering my nose. It was only covering my mouth. And a guy gave me the whole, hey, fix your mask thing before I could walk into the store. Now, look, it's a private business. I understand and I'm, I'm willing to comply because that's what the business has been told to do. And they're they're able to set their own regulations. It's a little bit like no shoot. Uh, pardon me. A little bit like no shirt, no shoes, <laughs> not no shoot, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Well, in New York, it's, you know, no mask, no gloves, no service, or at least no mask, no service. Gloves are optional still. But I don't know how long that will last either. So. Uh, there's there's this whole movement in this city toward making this feel more normal for people. You're seeing a lot more of these designer masks and uh, a lot of efforts to make it seem like this is just the way it's going to be for a very long time. Look, we're going into the summer and I think people will eventually get very tired of having these things on their faces, especially when they realize that your your risk. All I do is read the read the data and the studies all day long. Your risk from outdoor from outdoor transmission of this unless somebody is basically in physical contact with you or speaking right into your face where you can feel like the heat of their breath your risk of physical transmission from this from all the studies they have so far outdoors uh, is is insignificant i mean you have risk from everything right you have risk of getting uh 
a terrible staph infection every time you shave and you cut yourself. And, you know, you could die from a staph infection, but do you stop shaving? I mean, this is this is where we have to remind ourselves that there's no there's no perfect safety. And this reminds me of the conversation we were having as a country after 9-11 and with terrorism. People were saying, well, what do we have to do to make sure this never happens again? Yeah, you can prevent catastrophe with the right measures, or at least you can make it harder for catastrophe like that to occur because of those evil psychopaths of Al Qaeda. But there's no eliminating all terrorist attacks. We saw this with the rise of the Islamic State and all the lone wolf attacks here. There is no perfect safety. And if you if you try for perfect safety through state mandates, what you get is the elimination of freedom and you still have risk. You have risk from whatever it is the state says they're protecting you from, but you also have the risk of a state that has become almost all-powerful, which should terrify people a lot more than pretty much anything else we face out there in the real world. I mean, a state going tyrannical, if you look at history, you know, what, what, really, what really gets the body count very high? Tyrannical states. That's, that's, that's worse, than, worse than pretty much anything we've ever seen. I mean, the only exception to that might be the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, and that is something that's also coming up now in these discussions about masks, which I want to I want to transition to for a second. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You're seeing a lot of this pop up now. Analysis of the pandemic of 1918 and how San Francisco, they say, had had this under control. And then they started to ease and then it all came back and then things got so much worse. Notice how the uh, NBC News has a piece on this. I'm seeing it all over the place, though. Notice how the uh, the goal here has shifted. Now it's lockdowns indefinitely to prevent the second wave. Wait, I thought it was lockdowns to prevent overcrowding of the hospital. And then it was just bend the curve. So we have more time to figure out more about the disease and allow our public health sec- our public health and and uh, doctors and, and so on and so forth to get in a better position to deal with this. And now it's well, no, we have to lock down until we figure out how to prevent a second wave through test and trace. But the test and trace is never going to be anywhere near what it needs to be for us to be able to do what they say we need to be able to do, which is find out when someone has this and everyone they've talked to right away and then contain it. We have 320 million people in this country. Do you think the government's going to be, you think there's any way they would have enough effectiveness in test and trace that that really is, that that's a, that's a realistic option for us? This is all just people changing, constantly changing where the goalposts are on this. And now preventing a second wave? Here's what happened in San Francisco. They, they talk about the, anti, the anti-mask league and how people didn't want to wear masks anymore. And there was all this propaganda out there. Quote, the man or woman or child who will not wear a mask now is a dangerous slacker. A public service announcement from the American Red Cross said at the time. This was all in this NBC piece. And there were, then there was the Anti-Mask League and the other, other people were saying that, uh, you know, that masks were not necessary. But he, here's the problem. Um, they're, they're saying that they were flattening the curve and then it came back. Uh, flattening the curve indefinitely is called indefinite lockdown under the rules that are being set forward for us, and that destroys society. We can't do that. So they need to stop pretending that indefinite lockdown flattens the curve, and that means that that's what we're going to do because that's impossible. We're not going to do that. It would be not advisable to do that. 
and but there was a, a second outbreak here. Look, the states, uh, states and cities right now are playing a lot of games with this. They're saying they're reopening, but they're really not. They're saying that they have a roadmap, but they're afraid to enact it. This is why states that live in reality and are willing to have have leadership that are willing to take appropriate risks and show a little courage here will be what saves us because other states are just going to sit on this and sit on this and refuse to move until states that have taken action are okay, which is going to happen. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It bothers me that this is still in the news cycle because I think we're missing the bigger pieces of what we need to be doing as an American people to continue to protect one another. And we should be having that dialogue about asymptomatics. We should be having that dialogue about this unique clotting that we're seeing. And, you know, we're the first country that really had young people to this degree. Italy and Europe is about eight years older than us as a median age. So this is the first experience of this virus um, in an open society where we really can understand what's happening to every different age groups. These are the things that we should be talking about and focusing on. So I think as a as a scientist and a public health official and a researcher, sometimes I worry that we don't get the information to the American people that they need when we continue to bring up something that was from Thursday night. Oh, you mean the media is a bunch of irresponsible hacks? Here's Dr. Burks who I'm sure is going to all of a sudden you're going to see a bit of a change in tone from St. Fauci and St. Burks to, oh, well, well, why is Burks doing Trump's bidding? You already started to see some of it over the weekend. Oh, she's a hack just doing what Trump says. This woman has worked in public health at the highest levels for decades. She's been working on saving people from uh, from HIV, particularly in Africa, where millions and millions of lives have been saved by HIV prevention efforts. Uh, and and yet. Now, because she calls out the media's gotcha games, bullcrap, the stuff that we, we know they're doing, we know they're doing it, but they're starting to turn on her. They're starting to feel like she's not the, uh, the super genius that we had all been led to believe when she was telling us, you know, dealing with what were effectively worst case scenarios on this. They, they, don't, they don't feel quite the same way about her right now. Um, and that's just, it's just a reminder, folks, that the news media, even right now in a crisis, you know, America's house is on fire and the news media wants to run stories on how they don't like, you know, they don't like the house owner. And it's like, well, what are you guys doing? What is going on here? They, they just really can't help it, I suppose. This is who they are. I mean, they can't help it, but they, they're not going to change. This is the reality of the news media that we are dealing with. And unfortunately, this is the media we're stuck with. Uh, but I, I want to note that you know, some states are beginning to open Tennessee, Missouri, Montana. Uh, they're the latest ones, according to Fox News here, that have that have taken steps toward opening. And you're going to see these states are they're going. I mean, I really believe they're going to be OK. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but they're going to be OK. And then you're going to have more pressure on the blue states. But red states are not perfect here either. This is where you get the uh, when I say not perfect. I mean that there have been things that have happened in some red states that are very concerning. This is where you have this story. What was it on the on the blaze of a uh, <laughs> a sting operation against women who were trying to uh, women who were trying to uh, give nail salon services at home? You know, a sting operation. Well, you don't say. 
that's really a good usage of police resources, isn't it? That's really something that's worth worth people doing. Uh, trying to trying to paint people's nails for them, so the police set up uh, people undercover to make sure they get the get the women who are trying to make a living by painting people's nails at their homes. This is so stupid. It's so absurd. But we we see this happening. We see this happening in state after state, time after time, and it's because that there's a there's a mentality here. There are there are people who are in positions of authority. There are people who believe that they are uh, the ones that have to tell us how we deal with this and and what the real what acceptable risks are and what are not. And they do not like challenges to their authority. They do not want to hear about how Sweden is doing well. They don't want to hear even about other states that are reopening that have not had anywhere near the cases we have in the U.S. You know what? I also think a part of this is that everyone recognizes that our, our, our experts in the scientific community, um, so far we've had mixed results at best with the therapeutics that we have available to us right now. Who knows if a vaccine is going to be particularly effective and how soon it will be effective, how soon we'll actually have one. So waiting for medicine to save us, I do think that there was, and look, I, I'm guilty of this in my own in my own head, just the idea that we might be able to go back to living normal lives sooner because of some huge breakthrough. And what could be sweeter? What could be greater than that, right? But no, no, the same, same medical community that can't cure the common cold is going to have a challenging time with this. I can tell you that right now. Medical researchers around the world that, Look, I, I don't know the first thing about any of this, and this is not my area, but I'm just telling you, if we're waiting for the experts in this realm to just give us the silver bullet, we're going to be waiting a very long time. And our whole society, our whole way of life will deteriorate around us while we're playing that waiting game. We can't do that. You absolutely cannot allow that to be, uh, be the way that this goes forward. So then we also have the, uh, the left... And their complaints about all of this, which are, I have to just say are, are stunning, absolutely stunning. Here's, uh, here's Nancy Pelosi. And this is a great Pelosi moment in that it really distills the essence of Nancy Pelosi. She's so shameless. And if we had a real press that was oppositional and that was, that was interested in truth, Pelosi would be scared to go on any of these shows because she would just get constantly blasted for all of the misdirection, all the lies, all of the just most blatant political crap that she pulls. But instead, she knows that she's going into friendly territory all the time, with the exception of when, when she's on Fox News. And I can't remember the last time Pelosi was on a Fox News show. Maybe she does the Sunday shows because Chris Wallace is a very kind of, you know, neutral, centrist interviewer. Uh, but I don't I don't know that she's done any of the other Fox News shows recently because she's obviously not going to subject herself to having anyone ask a question about what a huge fraud she is and all of this. But here's Pelosi on the Remember, you have to remember you have to remember the timeline here. Pelosi was opposed initially to Trump's China travel restriction, said that it wasn't. It was, you know, racist, wasn't good. We're going to, you know, it's not going to work. It's not worth it. We shouldn't be doing this. She was a terrible idea. And now her criticism is effectively, well, it wasn't enough. You know, it wasn't enough. That, that's the shift that Nancy Pelosi has made here. Uh, play clip three. Actually, tens of thousands of people were still allowed in from China. So it, it, it wasn't as it is described as this great moment. 
there were Americans coming back or green card holders coming back, but there were tens of thousands. So if you're going to shut the door because you have an evaluation of, of an epidemic, then shut the door. Oh, Oh, so it wasn't strong enough, is her complaint now. And, and here's the problem that Nancy Pelosi has in making this case. Do you know what we call those tens of thousands of Americans who are coming back from China? Americans. <laughs> so she doesn't understand. These are citizens and green card holders. You're going to tell them they can't come back to their home country? Now, maybe we should have put them into quarantine right away. But hindsight is 2020. But could you imagine the outrage from Nancy Pelosi? I don't just mean in general. Imagine the outrage from Nancy Pelosi if when all of this was going on, the president had said, well, if you are coming back from China, obviously we're going to have a fair number of people who are Chinese Americans who are coming back from travel there who are citizens or green card holders. And if you come back and, you know, or you're, you're not allowed to come back, never mind even putting them into quarantine right away. You're not allowed to come back. Find somewhere else to live while we figure this out. First of all, it's not I don't even know how you deal with the constitutionality of that. I mean, you get a lot of problems. You'd have a lot of issues. Uh, But that's now Pelosi's claim. What was unnecessary and severe is now not severe enough. And she acts like she knew this all along and she has all the answers. Just appalling. I mean, she she is a truly appalling and and really deranged by politics uh, at this point. But she manages to still say this stuff. She manages to continue to just make these claims and does not get any of the pushback that you would expect, does not get anyone, um, you know, asking her real questions. I shouldn't say that you would expect, that you would hope for if we had a serious press corps, but we simply don't. But then again, Adam Schiff could also run around saying stuff like this. Remember, this guy is in the House Intelligence Committee. He tried to, he was the point man on the, pre, on the impeachment of the president, which was just a disgusting exercise. Here's Schiff, play 16. I don't think we had any idea how much damage he would go on to do in the months ahead. There are 50,000 Americans now who are dead uh, in significant part because of his incompetence, because of his inability to think beyond himself and put the country first. I don't think we would have ever anticipated that his brand of narcissism and his brand of incompetence, sometimes his brand of malevolence, would be so fatal to the American people. But probably, you know, the, the... strongest echo of what we were talking about during the trial was when he was earlier talking about how he didn't want to return the calls from governors. He didn't want his vice president to return calls from governors that weren't saying nice things about him, that really weren't saying things about him that he could then turn into campaign commercials, as indeed he has. Uh, That was such a profound and disturbing echo of what he tried to do with Ukraine. So sadly, you know, as we pointed out during the trial, a man with no moral compass will never find his way. And this president certainly hasn't. Does anyone think that Adam Schiff has a moral compass? Adam Schiff might be the slimiest, most dishonest person in the entire United States Congress, which is a remarkable feat. I mean, that's a truly stunning accomplishment for somebody to have, given how many liars and how many disgraces are, are in the Congress. Uh, but he's also he sounds like a crazy person here. Yeah. Trump is responsible for 50,000 deaths. No, notice the problem they, they will have as they continue this this line of of really just gutter attack. I mean, just the grossest, most underhanded, most despicable politics. Are, are all of the European countries, are all of their prime ministers guilty of murder, too? Do they all have blood on their hands? In fact, find me a major country. Does does any government not have blood on its hands? And at what point, if every government has blood on its hands, 
What does that even really mean? Other than governments can't protect you. Governments are incompetent by their nature. They are going to disappoint you. If you think that a government is there to be your friend and keep you safe, you're wrong. doesn't matter who the leader is. That's not the function of government. Right? They do, it does what it can in this case to try to protect us, but it's always going to disappoint you. It's never going to be enough. But you won't hear that from the, the Democrats. You won't hear that. Instead, you'll hear uh, the usual attacks about how Trump is completely and, and utterly uh, bereft of any moral compass, and he's a terrible person, and he's responsible for all this. Uh, meanwhile, they offer up none other than, than Joe Biden as the answer here, as if as if Joe Biden would do such a better job figuring all this out. Oh, oh. And in case you're wondering now, uh, Pelosi has, in fact, endorsed Joe Biden. Oh, this this is a this is a big one, folks. Ooh, this is really going to move the needle. Play it, Mark. Today, I am proud to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States because he will be an extraordinary president. He knows how to get the job done. Yeah, that's right. Joe Biden. That's who they that's who they say we do it better. We're dealing with an enormously complicated issue, really a once in a century pandemic. And if only the guy who talks about the weird blonde hairs on his legs and sniffs women's heads by his own admission and by photographic evidence and now has a completely credible and and I really mean credible uh, sexual assault allegation against him from when he was a United States senator. Um that's the person the Democrats are telling you, if only he were in charge, this would all be so much better. They can't really believe this, but we know that it doesn't matter whether they believe it or not. It's useful to them right now. What is the only principle the Democratic Party holds firm to? The pursuit of power, which is not really a principle. That's the only thing they really care about. Everything else is pushed aside at a moment's notice. Anything else is completely disposable. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and morality, that's that's funny, right? That's a joke. But I want to talk about how how the uh, the media is trying to handle the fact that now the word is out. And after all this stuff against Kavanaugh and we will talk a little bit more about the General Flynn situation, too, because we're getting more answers about this. Oh, your 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 humble conservative hosts like yours truly and among others. Somehow we've been right on Russia collusion. We've been right on General Flynn. We were right on Kavanaugh, right on these things all along. And the facts, additional facts after those fights were had in public prove that to be the case. But do you see any any penance from the media whatsoever about their efforts to destroy these people? Do you see anyone caring about how wrong they've been all along on the in the mainstream media? No, of course not. Because they knew that they were serving a purpose at the time. That was what mattered. But let's let's take a look at the Joe Biden situation. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You will recall during the Kavanaugh destruction uh, effort by the media, you will recall that there was uh, no evidence whatsoever of contemporaneous corroboration. In fact, the effort to destroy Kavanaugh revolved entirely around women who had increasingly implausible claims of, of sexual assault, uh, starting with the, the least obviously false, I think you call it that, with Christine Blasey Ford, and then going over to Deborah Ramirez. And I can say this, if you were in college and somebody put their, uh, their genitalia in your face, I don't think you would need, as she claims she did, 
a week of coaching by lawyers uh, to help you figure out if, in fact, that thing happened to you. That that strikes me as highly implausible. But that was what we were told. And also other people that were there at Yale University at the time remembered no such incident, did not believe that it happened. No corroboration whatsoever. And then you got to the Julie Swetnick case where the media was willing to with no Again, evidence of any kind other than a clearly delusional person seeking attention. Uh, and there were others, as I've told you. There were women who came forward who said that Brett Kavanaugh raped them on a boat in a state he had never been to. Right, so there were people who came forward. You know, we, we were being told in this instance that women have a right to be believed. And there were women who lied as a matter of record, because that's why the Senate Democrats didn't pro even produce those allegations. There were people who this was an all hands on deck effort to destroy a person who was viewed as a threat to uh, to Roe v. Wade and as, as a threat to the liberals preferred composition of the Supreme Court. So it was an anything goes situation. It was an anything goes moment. But even Blasey Ford was never even able to prove that she had met, met Brett Kavanaugh. Never. No record of anyone saying that they ever hung out, knew each other, were even in the same room. She claims that she went to a party, that she did not know how she got there, who invited her, where the house was, what house it was, and that he attacked her, and that she doesn't know how she got home or who picked her up or anything else, and she thought it was the wrong year also, which is left out of all of that, too. Oh, okay. So pretty much every fact she had was either not a fact or was wrong, but she knew it was Brett Kavanaugh, couldn't have been someone else, couldn't have been uh, some other guy that was you know grabbing at her when he was drunk at this party. Which is the thing that I know happens all too often. I mean, this is part of the problem is that this is that there are there are far too many people who are victims of this kind of conduct. And when someone comes forward with a politically charged allegation that does not have any facts behind it, it does affect perception of how often people are telling the truth with this. It just does. So it's wrong. It, it hurts real survivors when this happens, when people say, things that are clearly untrue for for reasons that we all understand, right? This was a Supreme Court seat, and this was considered uh, a, a sacred duty of, of women on the left to try and destroy Kavanaugh. Here's the problem now with the Joe Biden situation, as we know it. Um, the problem is that there is now not only an allegation that is credible that relies on uh, already established contact between the two of them, there's what we believe is video and audio evidence of contemporaneous corroboration. And not only that, but CNN had it in its archives. I'll bring you up to speed on this in a moment. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So here's where we are with, with the Democrat nominee for the presidency, Joe Biden. Uh, as I've already told you, the way that the media, the national press, treated the Kavanaugh situation was that any allegation against him was to be believed, no matter how flimsy it was in terms of evidence or even how not credible it would seem at, at first uh, at first look. Um, and that was a situation where there were there were a lot of people that said that they didn't believe that it had happened or that they couldn't give corroboration for it. There was no evidence that could be presented. But the standard was not only should a woman a woman have a right to be believed, the standard was that if there's even a doubt that is created about this person's ability, if there is any doubt whatsoever, then uh, ability to do this job, you know, credibly and, and in the eyes of the public, then they, then we deserve something better. So that person should step down. 
That was the standard for Kavanaugh that the media set up and that we were told we should all adhere to. How can that now not be the standard if it's for a Supreme Court justice? How can it not be the standard for a president? Now, we all know that they covered up stuff with Bill Clinton for a long time, too, that Bill Clinton was credibly accused, uh, credibly accused of rape. We know that. Right. That that is on the record. That has been long established. Media didn't care. But now in the post Me Too era, when they were so clear, so um, definite in what the standards were for gay, for uh, for gauging this kind of conduct, for deciding what should happen and what's believable and what's not. They're willing to toss this all out because of politics. We know this. Here's the problem that they currently have to deal with. And they're going to go through a lot of supposed soul searching and processing and they're going to use a lot of fancy words that mean one thing and one thing only they're not going to do squat about this they're not going to do anything about it they're just going to say oh yeah we talked about it we covered it we covered it in the back of the newspaper we we didn't mention it on air on tv but sure yeah no we covered it we're still looking we're still researching they're going to be researching joe biden's sexual assault allegations in 20 years meaning they're never going to really research it they're just going to keep saying that oh no we're still looking at it still trying to figure stuff out Here's the problem, though. You know, we were also told that contemporary corroboration is meaningful, right? Because at least that establishes that the person did not, as I believe the Kavanaugh accusers did, come up out of nowhere with I'm going to be a hero to women, to the women's movement, to the left by destroying this guy before he can be on the Supreme Court. And so they just made up stories, people that knew him from his life, but they just made it up. Uh, The problem that Biden has is that this isn't somebody who just made it up now because she doesn't want Biden to be president. This is somebody who, according to what we now have as at least circumstantial evidence, according to circumstantial evidence, uh, she was telling people about this at the time. And And the timeline all matches up for when she left the job and what she did next. Here is uh, audio of Tara Reid's mother back in 1993, allegedly calling into CNN to discuss how her daughter was, well, something bad happened to her, and it was from a prominent politician. Here, this this is what the audio of it sounds like. Play clip two. We're back. A couple more phone calls on this very important topic. Our guests are former United States Senator Howard Baker, Richard Allen, former National Security Advisor, and Lois Romano, of the Washington Post, San Luis Obispo, California. Hello. Yes, hello. Um, I'm wondering what um, uh, a, a staffer uh, would do, do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's true. Now, but these are the people who do come to the Lois Romanos, right? The mm-hmm. staff worker who says, I want to let you know about what's going this on, either going with my on, boss or the guy down the hall. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people have a sense of obligation. They feel that this public official should be accountable if it's something They're wrong. whistleblowers to the press. Guess where Tara Reed's mother was living in 1993 when that phone call was made to... The Larry King Show. San Luis Obispo, California. Guess when Tara Reid had just left her job? Right around then. People who have heard, including Tara Reid, have heard the audio have said, yep, that's Tara Reid's mother. So what are we to make of this? She clearly had a problem with, with Biden back then that made her leave her job. 
And it was so troubling that even her mother was calling into Larry King show to say, I'm worried, you know, this is the situation. So she didn't just come up with this story now because she doesn't want Biden to be president. And she likes Trump. In fact, I understand she's a Democrat, but I'm sure that won't get that won't get much play. So what do the Democrats do about this? You know, what's funny is we, we all know what they're going to do, which is nothing. This will just this will just be treated like it's a thing that we all know, but cannot be spoken of. Can't talk about this. Doesn't have any residence, doesn't have any impact or power. Joe Biden has to beat Donald Trump. That's all that matters. Nothing else matters. I, I really believe that that the Democrat Party could find out that Joe Biden had a long history of this. And I would note that uh, bosses who tend to grab women and penetrate them against their will, which is what the allegation is here, tends not to be, tends not to be a one off thing. There are bosses who do this and they tend to be predators. And that's. Uh, that's usually what you find out in there when you do a deep dive into their background and how they've really been. So is, is this woman even the only one with Biden? But I'll tell you this, if five women came forward and said that Biden did this, you know, you know what the response would be from the media, from the press? Well, women accused Trump, too, so can't do anything about this. The whataboutism, the double standards, it's going to be jaw-dropping. All the people in the media who were claiming that Kavanaugh should step down, claiming they believe Kavanaugh, they are, and, and the pol- their politics were quite obvious in that whole process. They're the same people now who are not saying anything about what, Joe, what the allegations against Joe Biden are. And, and I would note, because I also think that this is important, uh, I think this is uh, something that we, we need to keep in mind, there, there's no accountability whatsoever for the press doing what they did. The lies that they told, the... Uh, willingness to cast aside any effort at impartiality, at being nonpartisan, and being wrong. They were wrong. They are wrong about Kavanaugh, and they are going to feign ignorance and stupidity about Biden, because what else are they going to do? There's nothing about this allegation that rings false. And if five women came forward and said that Joe Biden had done this to them, they would still say the same thing. Nope, none of them have a right to be believed. Too much at stake here for the left. Too much power. They hate Trump that much. How, how can anybody who's a journalist be taken seriously with this? I mean, you go back and look at what people were saying on the left, what the Democrat media was saying about Kavanaugh at the time, those who believed all this. They've set a standard here that they, they just simply are going to forget that they set. They're going to just pretend it never happened. Because these people, I really tell you this, among the worst human beings in America in professional life who are treated generally well and think that they're important are mainstream journalists. They're, they're among the worst people in the country of, in any profession. Yeah, there's like, you know, cartel hitmen who are worse. But I'm saying for a profession that thinks of itself as being elite and worthwhile and really important to the functioning of our republic, uh, journalism is rotten in America. Not all journalists are rotten, but journalism in general is rotten. There's no other explanation for how this uh, Joe Biden allegation is being handled versus the way that the Kavanaugh situation was handled. Do you think that CNN found this in its archives? I would note. Nope. Someone else had to go and find this in CNN's archives. Wow. You mean that the same media that was able to find a 10 year old, uh, you know, off off stage Mike moment with Billy Bush and President Trump to try to destroy him. A classic October surprise, as dirty as it gets right before the election. Even that same mainstream media couldn't figure out this. It had to be brought to CNN's attention. Oh, wow. 
I don't think anybody's even a little bit surprised by that. I mean, CNN is on an anti-Trump jihad. We all know that. They've been on it for years. They're not going to change. Um, but we don't have to show them respect as a media organization, as a journalistic enterprise, because they don't deserve respect for either of those things. They don't deserve respect in general. And to all the women out there that I know who wanted to believe the press was being fair and what it was saying about Kavanaugh, I would want to know how, how could anyone try to claim that what's going on right now where you have a Democrat nominee for the presidency who has been credibly accused of sexual assault by a woman who, can, who did know him, who was alone with him, and who does have now contemporaneous corroboration or having told other people about the story back in 1993. Is it okay if Joe Biden does it? What is the standard? What is the standard that they are operating under now? They need to establish this. Do they excuse Joe Biden because he's too important to Democrats? I mean, that is what they're doing, but I just want I want them to verbalize it. I want them to have to say it. Why is this OK? You know, CNN, I don't think has done a single story on this. What, what, what a trash heap of an organization that place is. It's really appalling. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Would it be a mistake if Joe Biden didn't pick a woman of color to be his running mate? I think President a President Biden will do what he has always done, which is respect and value communities of color. I think he understands that black communities and people of color are vital to the success of the Democratic Party. And I think he's going to pick the right person. I, of course, think that a woman of color can bring certain attributes. We have to lift up marginalized communities, communities that do not trust that they will be served because they have been the hardest hit by this pandemic. In the state of Georgia alone, while we're only 32% of the population, African-Americans comprise 54% of the deaths. And so, yes, having a woman of color on the ticket will help promote not only diversity, but trust. But I trust Joe Biden to pick the person he thinks is the right running mate for him. Man, the media is really helping out with the Stacey Abrams for VP campaign, aren't they? Keep, keep on put, giving her as much of a platform as I can remember. This is a woman who lost the Georgia governor's race and then went around saying that she won it. So, you know, she's got great judgment, uh, but they're really doing everything they can to try to help, uh, in part because, you know, Chuck Todd putting an African-American female on his show that he's elevating as a likely Joe Biden or a possible Joe Biden pick makes, you know, makes Chuck Todd feel like he's doing his part for diversity and, and wokeness uh, and, and doing what the left would want him to do. You see this in a lot of these other Sunday shows as well. I bring this up because you had, I think, a, a handful of different possible uh, possible vice presidential picks for Biden that were showing up on the Sunday shows, which I don't really, I mean, I think the Sunday shows are overwhelmingly garbage. I think they're trash. I think they're not very good. You know, there's this old sort of inside DC. We need to have, you know, the old Tim Russert model of things. It's all gone now. I mean, Chuck Todd is a, is an intense mediocrity and everyone knows it. And so are these other people that have these Sunday. Jake Tapper, he's the most boring man on television, but you know, whatever. Uh, they, they do this. They have these Sunday shows. And how many of them do you think asked Biden's vice presidential candidates, especially in the case of Stacey Abrams, a female? Uh, what do you think about the credible sexual assault allegation against Joe Biden? Do you think any of them got asked that question? Nope. They skip right past that one. Why is that? How can you be a journalist when you have a president, uh, a presidential contender? You only have two men left in this race now. It's Biden and Trump. One of them has and it's just come to light that there's contemporaneous corroboration of the sexual assault allegation against Biden. How can you not ask that question? 
See, this this goes to everything that we talk about here all the time, which is the bias that's going on, that people are pursuing an ideological agenda. And it's why you shouldn't watch ABC News tonight, even though I think like 12 million people do. You should listen to people that actually tell you what's true and who share your values and your view, because the information is already out there. We all have access to more information than ever before. It's what values, what principles do you apply to it? What analysis do you do with it? What do you think the takeaways are? How do you use judgment? And how do you tell people to go forward once they have that information, right? That, that's what differentiates. Not having someone who looks and sounds fancy and who has really cool intro music and is on ABC News or you know, any of these other platforms. Uh, or, or you can watch CNN and have the likes of uh, Jim Acosta still present himself as just, just an honest, objective journo, man. Play 15. I mean, I know why the president didn't take questions this evening. It's interesting to me that Kayleigh McEnany, you know, the new spokesperson who, you know, is over the top in her, you know, uh, Soviet-like praise of, uh, or, you know, rewriting of history on things, um, would say one thing, and then the president, they clearly didn't even coordinate their lies. Uh, they didn't, Anderson. And I think we, we found out today that the president's uh, words have meaning, but they're also at times hazardous to your health. Uh, and I think that was part of uh, what we learned today. And, and going to your point, Anderson, uh, there just isn't enough disinfectant at the White House uh, to wash away what the president did and the lies that were told to try to cover it up. I will tell you, Anderson, one of the reasons why he cut short that briefing uh, earlier this evening, my sources tell me, is because the president was upset about the flack he was taking over uh, his comments that people could use disinfectants to kill uh, the coronavirus inside their bodies. Yeah, objective journos there. You got one guy who's a news anchor, Anderson Cooper, quote, news anchor. First of all, really doesn't sound particularly articulate there, does he? You know, like, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, like Kaylee McEnany, you know, I mean, so go back and listen to it. It's really paying that guy 15 million a year, something like that, 10, 15 million a year for a job that you could replace him tomorrow and nobody would care and nobody would notice. But, you know, Jeff Zucker likes him. So and he's the brand over there, whatever that means. Not Jeff Zucker, Anderson Cooper. Uh, and then you have Jim Acosta, who is, I mean, who is clownish in his partisanship. And we got all these things going on in this country. You know, why is it that I'm here telling you about the data, talking to you about Sweden, about lockdowns, about all this and these other, everything at CNN is just about Trump, Trump bad, orange man bad, Trump bad. Oh, and MSNBC, I mean, it's, it's the same thing over there. It's not like they're any better. Here's a crazy Joe Scarborough. Is he still somehow listed as a conservative? I, I just want to know what the... I mean, J Joe Scarborough is the Jennifer Rubin of conservative male TV pundits in that all he does is bash the right but still claims to have some affiliation with the right, I guess. The guy's just a jerk, too. The people that I know that work with him say he's not a nice, not a nice guy, really full of himself, which is interesting because he's another guy who's just intellectually deeply mediocre and has just played the game right, the corporate game, and gotten into a good position for himself uh, financially. I mean, not ethically, morally, or in terms of his contribution to society. Uh, play four. And the president had just said a couple months earlier that it was just one person coming in from China who was going to be swept away, or it was 11 or 15 people. Then let me just say, then the 25th Amendment is de facto uh, abolished. And I'm not, of course, I'm not, we've got an election coming up. I'm not saying uh, that this is what Democrats should push for because no. it would only distract. I'm just saying, like my con law professor said about the 10th Amendment, that the growth of massive growth of government, in effect, 
made void for all practical purposes, the 10th Amendment. You can add the 25th Amendment to that right now because this president uh, is behaving in a way that is so dangerous extraordinarily irrational in the middle of a pandemic that is changing history, that is destroying our economy day by day, that's killing people, especially seniors, day by day, that if it were ever going to be used, it would be used now. It's not going to be used. So why don't we just stop? Why don't we just stop pretending that we have a 25th Amendment? Because we really, for all practical purposes, we don't. No, it's not a good point. They're both just not very bright. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. North Korea has been in the news a lot lately, and I wanted to break down everything that's going on, separate fact from fiction. And to help us do that, we are joined by a true expert in the field, Bruce Klingner. He's a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He spent 20 years at my old uh, my old spot, the CIA, but he spent a lot more time there than I did. Mr. Klinger, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. All right. So let's just start with why is North Korea getting all this attention? There was maybe Kim Jong-un is dead. Maybe he's really sick. Oh, wait, no, he's not. W- what happened and where are we now on that? Well, as you point out, there are an awful lot of rumors, everything from he's dead, he's brain dead, he's incapacitated. Uh, from a heart attack, a failed heart operation, uh, even from a failed missile launch that he was observing. At the other end, uh, U.S., South Korea, and Chinese officials are saying he's fine, uh, either because we see nothing unusual in North Korea, or some would say they have information that he's fine. The bottom line is is we don't know. Uh, When I worked uh, North Korea at, at CIA, it was the hardest of the hard targets. Uh, you know, in retrospect, uh, before that, I had worked the Soviet Union, which was an open book compared to North Korea. So, you know, on the one hand, there's nothing unusual that we can see. There's no real hard information on uh, Kim's condition. There have been many reports, false reports over the years uh, of failing health or death of Kim, as well as the two predecessors. And then they came out, uh, reemerged fine. So those of us who have been watching for a long time, we tend to be uh, fairly conservative in jumping to conclusions. We've been through a lot of these rumors. Uh, So they may be true. He may be toes up on a slab, but it could also be yet another instance of false rumors. And he just reemerges either after recuperating or he was never uh, in sickness at all. And what would be the the succession plan if if such a thing really even is known or exists? There was a lot of internet chatter over the weekend about the possibility of uh, his sister taking over, uh, who is kind of a, a known quantity because of the Olympics some time ago. But what, what, what would happen if Kim Jong-un dropped dead of a, of a heart attack tomorrow? Well, again, the answer is we don't know. There's no formal succession plan in the North Korean constitution as there wasn't when Kim's father, Kim Jong-il, died in 2011. Uh, there may be a plan behind the scenes uh, either standing or an ad hoc in case he was going in for a heart procedure. Um, so we're all trying to assess. I think up until a couple of years ago, the, the, the view was that a traditional Confucian society like North Korea wouldn't have a, a woman leader. Uh, but in the last two years, uh, Kim's sister uh, has come out of the shadows. She's gained authority. She's gained stature. Uh, she really led the delegation to... Uh, South Korea for the Olympics two years ago, even though others nominally were higher ranking, she clearly was in charge. 
So I think right now she has the inside track because she's a Kim family member. Uh, others will point to an uncle uh, of Kim Jong-un, but he was really exiled for 30 years in Eastern Europe, and he only came back recently. So I think right now it would appear to be the sister, but uh, again, we don't know. And what what's the, the, the concern if, if there was a, a death? I mean, there were some people, obviously, who were celebrating this a bit, uh, prematurely celebrating it, as we now know, because who knows what even uh, is going on with Kim Jong-un. Uh, but is, is there... Is there a great, you know, would it be would it be a good thing from the perspective of geopolitics and international relations if Kim Jong-un died? Or is there are there too many unknowns that, you know, maybe it's a devil, you know, situation versus whoever could come after him? I mean, what how how would we assess that right now? Is it an opportunity if he dies? Well, is, is it a possible collapse? Sort of all of the above. Uh, you know, no one outside of North Korea is going to shed a tear if this brutal dictator uh, who, according to the UN, is a purveyor of crimes against humanity if he passes away. Uh, but there will be concern by the United States, as well as South Korea and, and Japan, our critical allies, uh, about uncertainty in succession. Uh, there's the, the fear of an explosion in that North Korea may lash out at its neighbors, uh, either because of a perceived threat from outside or to create a rally around the flag effect uh, for succession or an implosion of regime collapse, regime instability, a power struggle, civil war, who's got control of the nuclear weapons. Uh, so all of those are, are very real concerns. There's going to be a lot of uh, visibility uh, by the U.S. and its allies, uh, the military and intelligence communities on what's going on. Uh, you know, that said, we had the same concerns when the two previous leaders passed away and the system worked in that the regime maintained itself uh, and they the anointed successor did succeed, even though many had predicted they would fail. What do we know about, and by the way, we're speaking to Bruce Klingner. He is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, 20 years spent before that at the Central Intelligence Agency. Bruce, what, what do we know about uh, how North Korea is handling uh, the coronavirus situation, considering that they're right next door to China? China had this terrible outbreak. One of the only countries really that has consistent commerce with North Korea is China. So do we know? Again, I, we know it's a black box to some degree, but have we seen any indicators that they've uh, had this disease uh, spread within their borders? Uh, North Korea still officially says they've had no cases whatsoever. None, none of us believe that uh, because all of the neighboring countries had it. But right after the outbreak in China, they imposed some pretty strong uh, containment measures. They cut off really contact with the outside world. They canceled flights from Beijing and Moscow. Uh, they closed the border with China, uh, and they even cracked down on state-run smuggling, which had been a way of gaining money for the regime to try to circumvent UN uh, sanctions. So the, the border with China is still a bit porous, but it has really uh, been cracked down on. So th there are sources inside North Korea that says there have been deaths, there have been cases, uh, but we're not seeing real indications of widespread uh, death or disease as one might have expected. So perhaps they they were able to uh, dodge a bullet on, on COVID. Uh, and there are indications that some schools in Pyongyang are starting to reopen. So being the hermit kingdom, as it's called in this case, might have actually been something of, of an advantage, uh, being such an isolated place. The isolation may have paid off for them in, in that regard. Uh, how is the Trump administration overall at this point, uh, how would you assess how they've done 
in dealing with North Korea. Just sort of taking a step back, we're going to be heading into an election this fall. Trump had all this outreach to Kim Jong-un. Now he's back in the headlines because of what may have been some health issues. Again, we don't know, as you've established. But has Trump had the right approach? Do we, do we have anything to show for now going into year four of a new, a new tactic or new tactics when it comes to North Korea? Uh, we really we've made absolutely no progress on denuclearization or uh, getting any kind of change in North Korean uh, behavior. Uh, recently, North Korea has said they are not interested in any working level or even summit level meetings with President Trump uh, unless we basically capitulate on our denuclearization uh, policy. So, uh, you know, I wasn't uh, a supporter of the idea of the summit diplomacy. I am more of a traditionalist in the idea of you actually make progress at the working level and work up to a summit where you sign an agreement. Uh, but at least it did put to the test the idea that many people had of if only the leaders from the two countries could get together, only the North Korean can, leader can make a decision. So therefore, we'd have a breakthrough. Well, we've tested that hypothesis and, and found it false. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot that I have been critical of the Trump administration on North Korea. Uh, but no administration or president has a monopoly on good or bad ideas when it comes to North Korea. So what we have to do is have a a truly maximum pressure policy that we have not had that uh, despite the moniker. Uh, we've been holding back on enforcing our own laws as well as uh, UN sanctions. Uh, we've been curtailing military exercises for two years on the Korean Peninsula. And, and right now we're engaged in uh, some very uh, torturous negotiations with South Korea over their compensation for U.S. forces. I, I don't think the U.S. should be demanding exorbitant increases, a five-fold increase. Uh, as the administration is, I think we should accept a, a incremental increase because right now we need to be shoulder to shoulder with our allies, not bickering over nickels and dimes when we face common threats, not only from North Korea, but also China. Bruce Klingner of the Heritage Foundation and formerly of uh, the CIA. Bruce, thank you so much for your expertise, sir. Uh, we appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Big tweet out from Maria Bartiromo over the weekend. Breaking news. Sources tell me General Flynn will be completely exonerated this week. It was a total fraud, a setup. More tomorrow. I guess that was uh, yesterday on Sunday. Oh, wow. You mean that the the primary, other than, than, than Manafort, the primary justification in terms of a criminal prosecution that was successful for so much of the Russia collusion nonsense, right? This is what they would point to. Oh, look at General Flynn, convicted felon General Flynn. Look at all the criminality that we found here. No, you mean you manufactured. It was disgusting what they did to General Flynn. Let's just review for a moment, shall we? He's the incoming national security advisor, former chief of the Defense Intelligence Agency, had spent 30 years working as part of the United States military, serving in uniform. Uh, he was a decorated veteran, and he was one of the early national security allies of the Trump administration, which made him hated by the deep state national security establishment, as we know. And he's coming in during the transition. He's the incoming national security advisor. And what do, uh, what do Sally Yates at DOJ and Comey over at FBI and this this whole cabal that we know. What do they decide to do? They take leaked, criminally leaked information 
by by Ignatius over the Washington Post. And they're now looking into and I oh, oh, I hope Durham. I hope the Durham investigation finds who leaked that stuff and sends them to prison for a good four or five years. That's because that's really that's probably what you get for that. Maybe you get three, four years in a deal. But I mean, you're going to get real prison time for leaking TS information to the press like that. And some of you would say, well, no, 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 Buck, you should get 10. Look, look at, you know, look at, you know, reality uh, winner or whatever her name is. You know, she got 10 years. Right. I mean, so you can get some real time for leaking uh, a, a top secret intercept like that to the press for partisan purpose. They got to make they got to make a really strong example of that person. Guess what? It's going to be somebody who liked Obama a lot, probably would vote for Biden now or definitely would vote for Biden now and hates Trump. So they might be able to find out who this is. I certainly hope they do find out who it is. And that would that would be a, a big missing piece of all this. But also remember that they used the Logan Act to have a sit down conversation with General Flynn uh, and then pretended that it wasn't really a friendly conversation to the National Security Advisor and the FBI and people were telling us all the experts who told you, oh, but he should know better. These people are morons. OK, this was as clear a setup as anything could ever be. I've told you that all along. Those who have been listening to me for years here on the show know that I knew exactly what game they were playing with this. They got them on a one zero zero one violation. Now it turns out there was a side deal that they would not disclose where they would with, withhold charges or that they would refrain from charges against his son if he pleaded guilty. So what they did is they jammed him up and they made sure that, you know, he had no chance to take this to trial. If he took it to trial, they were going to annihilate him and his family members. And for what you'd say for lying about what he didn't even do anything illegal. So they're going to get him for not lying about criminal conduct, but just misremembering a conversation that he has with two FBI guys. Remember, uh, Andy McCabe lied very, very much so under oath, but he's FBI and he's connected to the deep state folks. And so he didn't get charged. No criminal charges. How is that possible? The guy lied under oath. Well, it doesn't count. So we see the double standard, just like the double standard with Kavanaugh. I mean, this is this is the way that the left, the deep state dishonest people always have to have malleable standards because that's the only way they'll be able to get what they want. Because if a standard is, is applied consistently and universally, then it's it's clear that they're going to run on the wrong side of it at some point because they're bad people. So what do they do? They use standard. They use rules against us and then they have no rules for themselves. This is a piece from Sean Davis in The Federalist just from a couple days ago. New court documents filed under seal include significant exculpatory information about Michael Flynn. The new documents, which were filed under seal by the Justice Department on Friday, allegedly include exonerating evidence about Flynn who pleaded guilty to lying to federal investigators about conversations with foreign diplomats as Trump's top incoming foreign policy advisor and is currently attempting to withdraw his plea, as well as evidence of malfeasance by the FBI during its investigation of Flynn. According to the FBI official who spoke to the Federalist, FBI General Counsel Dan Bonte led the charge internally against DOJ's disclosure of new materials. Bonte, who briefly served as acting attorney general after Trump became president, personally signed off on one of the federal spy warrants against former Trump campaign affiliate Carter Page. The new documents, which were filed under a protective order by DOJ on Friday, will reflect poorly on the FBI. The official told the Federalist it is not clear when or even if those documents will be unsealed and made to the public. 
Because the documents were filed under seal, the Federalist has not been able to review them independently. Multiple investigative reports issued by the DOJ Inspector General uh, revealed myriad instances of corruption by FBI officials throughout the multi-year investigation of Trump and his former campaign. uh, Former campaign. Um, My friends, the fix was in from the beginning. This was a disgusting, a disgusting miscarriage of justice. Uh, They knew that Flynn didn't lie. As we know from the initial report, the FBI didn't believe that Flynn lied, but then they were pushed to amend that for some reason to get leverage. Oh, now they got him on this. This is the classic FBI maneuver, just so you know. When they want to get you on something, they always look to get you on a 1001 violation, and then that becomes the lever they use to get everything else they want. So, So you think you're in a position to fight against something you think that they've got the wrong guy, but guess what? They don't, they don't have to prove that their initial suspicion of, of you for criminal conduct was correct. All they have to do is get you in a 1001 lying to uh, FBI, and now you're facing five years. Now you'll do whatever they say. You'll plea, you'll, uh, you'll rat on other people, you, know, you'll, you won't just to borrow from, uh, who was it that was saying this all the time? Alan Dershowitz up at Harvard about all this stuff. He said that they won't just... Uh, sing they'll compose meaning they won't just tell tales they'll make them up as they go along about what you know whatever they think that the officials want to hear so you know here we go and the federalist just an hour ago published robert Mueller's case against michael flynn is about to implode new facts in the michael flynn investigation call into question the voluntariness of flynn's plea judge sullivan should dismiss the charges to send a clear message outrageous Prosecutorial coercion will not be tolerated. My friends, um, this needs this needs to happen. We need justice here. I've been saying all along that General Flynn should be I've said it on Twitter. I've been very open that he should be pardoned, that the president should pardon him. In a sense, I guess now I'm, I might end up being happy I did not get my request because he may be not just pardoned, but uh, he may be exonerated meaning that they, they vacate his plea and, and the judge vacates his plea and says, you know, we are sorry and, and sends him on his way because this is, this is appalling. His team, his legal team, is trying to withdraw the guilty plea right now. Uh, the more they find out about this, I mean, they keep trying to hide the information. The more information that comes out, the more clear it is that they railroaded this guy. They basically made up a crime, made him plead to it, or else they're going to destroy him and his son And now they're trying to hide what they did. You know why they did all this? Because he was tied to Trump and because the deep state didn't like that somebody else came along and was in power who wasn't one of theirs. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Going to get to some roll call. I want to check in with producer Mark over in the penalty box. My friend, how was your weekend? Great. How was yours? It was all right. What did you watch? Uh, we started a new show called Silicon Valley, Valley on HBO. I don't know if you ever um, watched it. Amazing show. Yeah, great show. Great show. I, yeah, I, I, I've had a feeling you guys would both like that one. That's a great one. Yeah, we, we're really, really enjoying it. We're in like season three, I think. It's a quick show, only 25 minutes or so an episode. Yes, yeah, so you can burn through episodes real fast, yeah. but it's good. And, you know, people that I know who are in that, that Silicon Valley world, I mean, the real thing, say that there's a lot of, a lot of truth in that show. That a lot of the silly stuff is really based on real stuff, and uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's that very, doesn't surprise think, me at all. Yeah, it's very clever. 
Uh, well, I'm glad, man. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I, I saw a show called, I mean, a, a movie called Extraction. I also watched a bit of uh, The Crown with the Snow Princess. We had a very nice time. The Crown is great, by the way. I, I didn't think I would like it. A fantastic show. But I, I saw this movie, e- Extraction. I watched this one solo while the Snow Princess was doing other things. Uh, the, the, the movie Extraction is, I've never seen a movie with so little plot and so little dialogue and so many people getting shot. It's like nothing else. I mean, it's at least the movie Commando, all the violence kind of comes at the end. But Schwarzenegger's Commando, which if you haven't seen, is a great old action flick. It's all building to just one long continuous shootout at the end uh, where he just keeps switching weapons and it's ridiculous and it's amazing. It's a great, great movie. Let off some steam, Bennett. It's a great movie. Uh, This movie, there's just a lot of shooting pretty much the whole time. And it's just one guy. Who, who kills so many people that he makes John Wick look like a pacifist. Uh, it's the, the guy who plays Thor in the uh, Avengers movies. Yeah, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. He's just running around, lighting up dudes all over the place. I've never seen so many people get shot in a movie, I think, by one person. It's just, I've never seen anything like it. It's pretty astonishing. Was it entertaining? Yes. Could I write a better script in 10 minutes? Probably. So there's that. Anyway. Well, that was a great my, recommendation. Yeah, no, I'm just telling, look, it's a, it's a review, not a recommendation. I'm just saying this is what I, you know, this week I'm very excited because I have, uh, I have the last kingdom to get to. I'm Uhtred, son of Uhtred. It's going to be amazing. I'm very pleased about that. So the last kingdom is a great show and I'm going to be watching the last kingdom, which will be a lot of fun. All right, here we go. TJ writes, Buck. Today here in Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds is announcing her plan to reopen the state. We never had a shelter in place. Amongst those plans, it's already been stated that farmers markets will be allowed to reopen, but food vendors only. And people are being encouraged to mask up and only send one family member with no kids. I can't help but notice some of my more left-leaning acquaintances uh, are taking issue with this. However, I'm sure these same people go to an indoor box store grocer to get their groceries weekly or biweekly. But God forbid we have an open air market. We can get our food from our small business neighbors without being confined to the eight foot wide grocery store aisles. I can't decide if those people just haven't thought this through or if they just would rather not see a GOP governor be successful in reopening the state. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I think I think that, first of all, outdoor markets are probably safer than indoor markets. We all know that. And I, I do I do believe that there was a a surge. I know there were outdoor hospitals they set up during the Spanish flu pandemic but uh, i think they also started to move a lot of things outdoors as much as possible because just fresh air sunlight as we know these are good things these things kill the virus uh, as for people who don't want there to be success on this yeah we're, we're going to see some of that i wish it was not the case but there are people that would rather be right than have us return to a greater a greater degree of normalcy there are people that would prefer to be correct than to have things go better for all of us eric Hey, Buck, I've been listening to your podcast since back when you were on The Blaze. Well, thank you, Eric. You've been a part of my routine daily at work. I work as a lead custodian, so luckily I'm still working. It seems to me that people are happy to stay home and collect money from the government, especially since most people are making more more on unemployment. Why can't people work with masks like I'm forced to every day? I'm starting to feel like there's something going on behind the scenes. I'm not a big conspiracy theory kind of guy. People really hate Trump, though, and I'm starting to think deep state Democrats and the media might be up to something. Eric. Well, Eric, first of all, thank you for continuing to do what you do and making sure that, uh, 
you know, f- places or wherever you're, it is you're working as a custodian, that it's clean and sanitary. And that really is these days more important than ever. And just that you're showing up and continue to be productive. You deserve a big, uh, a big high five for that. And as for why can't other folks work with masks on, I think that's what we're heading for. I think there will be more people that are working with masks. So that's going to become more normal. That's going to become a an expectation that we all have in our offices, in our jobs. I think you might have an increase in social distancing in the office, too, meaning that desks will have to be further apart. I mean, I remember when I worked in the CIA, we were in a like a shared cubicle situation and it just felt like we were all on top of each other. I mean, we were so it was just so tight in there. And, and that was I'm not talking about overseas where you expect if you're in a war zone, you're going to be in tight quarters. I mean, here stateside. So I think they're going to have a shift away from all of that. And yeah, mask wearing is going to become uh, very normal in the office, which I mean, a lot of masks are not comfortable. I think people forget this. If you put on one of those N95 respirator masks, for example, you find that they're really tight on your face. They're not very not fun to have on. So, uh, yeah, man, I, I think that's where we're heading. And Eric, thank you so much for um, writing in and thank you for listening since I was on the blaze. man. that's going back now. I haven't been on the blaze in four years. Uh, Robert Buck, I listen to you on podcast. This is Rob from VA. Uh, wanted to ask why Iraq was such a bad foreign policy decision. Looking back at 9-11 and not knowing what was going to happen next, and Saddam was a bad guy, and Iran was even worse, we go into Afghanistan, we liberate Iraq, and wow, looks like Iran is in the middle. Do you think this could have been a factor in going into Iraq? It didn't work out the way we wanted, and the media and the Democrats are at fault. I'm still in uniform, and you stay on the radio. First heard you on the Rush show. Stay safe. Well, Robert, I appreciate you listening to me fill in for the great man himself, Mr. Rush Limbaugh, the, uh, the greatest living uh, radio host. And uh, as for uh, why Iraq is a bad decision, I think you just look at the, the consequences of this and what we, what we gained versus what we lost in that whole process. So I think the moment you do that, you start to see that there was a, there was a cost-benefit analysis that would go in a very different direction now that we actually have the inputs, the factors, the numbers, we would we would have a very different approach to it. Uh, yeah, I, I think that they believed at the time. And I, I remember this and I remember I worked in the Iraq office of the CIA. So I could also go back and look at a lot of the historical documents from that office as I did. And I had access to pretty much every piece of classified information that the CIA's Iraq office had. So with that, I mean, I can just tell you that the expectations for what were going to happen there in that country were very different from the outcome. There really was a belief, uh, and this is, you know, this is well known, this is all across the media as well, and people understand this, but there really was a belief throughout government that, or at least in a lot of places within the government that were making decisions, that we would come along and the Iraqis would be happy that he was gone, and then this would, sh- this would serve as a model. This was the, the pitch was that it would serve as a model for other Middle Eastern states, and it just turned out to not be the case that they would take to this the way that we thought that they perhaps would. It was not the case that this led to, uh, you know, a series of flowering democracies throughout the Middle East. And when you look at it in that context, and we also had to keep fighting the war on terror and Afghanistan is still ongoing now. And we still have troops in Iraq. You look at these decisions. I just think it's very hard in retrospect to think that these were to think that that decision in particular to go into Iraq, knowing what we know now, I think it's clear it was a bad idea. If we were in the same circumstances and you're asked using the same data as you were at that point in time, would you would you end up with the same result? That's a more complicated question. That's a more difficult thing for us to figure out. So I leave it to you. But thank you for your service, Robert. And thanks so much for listening to the show. Kelly, 
I just heard part of the conversation about parents homeschooling. I may have misunderstood, but my opinion about parents homeschooling, and I see it with a lot of my stressed out friends with their homeschooling, they don't have the education to help with math, especially among other subjects. Students aren't getting the benefits of actually teachers. It's not the same, and kids need to be back to school eventually when it's safe. Hey, Kelly, I- I'm, I'm not opposed to kids going back to school. I just think that the, the effort to malign homeschooling, and my friend Inez Felcher, who joined us last week, made this pretty clear, I think, when she said, look, this is not homeschooling. This is shelter in place with your kids and try to teach them some stuff. Actual homeschoolers, of which there are a couple of million in the country, that the teachers set up before, I mean, the, sorry, the parents set up beforehand to be better teachers, to make sure they know what the curriculum is, that make sure they understand what they're going to be teaching ahead of time. And they're also setting up activities and all kinds of other things. So this is ad hoc. Uh, this is, uh, you know, impromptu homeschooling, which is not the way it's normally done. And as for kids going back to school, sure. And look, there are a lot, there are a lot of very good public schools in the country. We all know that. Uh, but there are a lot of bad ones and people should have choices about what they what their children uh, learn and where they go to school. And the one size fits all do what we say or else attitude from the state about public schools is troubling, especially when you see what a massive fiscal burden uh, the the teachers. It's really the teachers unions, but, you know, the education budgets, uh, which is largely a slush fund to pay adults. In a lot of these places, I'm not saying the teachers make a lot of money, but there are a lot of administrators and union officials and people like that that are also making money that have nothing to do with teachers. I think if you if you check the statistics, you'd see that over the last uh, 20 years, there has been a seven X increase in our public school system of non teaching staff. So all kinds of administrators and special assistants and, you know, all this other stuff. So that's why it's become a huge jobs program. A lot of people have these jobs that they really can't get fired from. They've got very cushy benefits, not a huge salary, but some salaries for for, uh, you know, teaching bureaucrats, not for teachers. It's actually quite high. You know, if you're the superintendent of schools in some districts, you're, you're making a lot of money. Actually, you're doing very well. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Okay, more roll call here. Chris writes in, Buck, love your podcast. We listen to it here at the detective's office every morning. It's become a morning staple with our standard black rifle coffee, even if it is a little bit behind because I listened to it from the day before. Help us out here. We have a running bet regarding producer Mark. Is he for real or is he just doing a shtick? There is no way a 27-year-old millennial could really be as, as stuffy and weary of the world as this guy. A week's worth of lunches is on the line, and these guys don't order off the kids' menu. Shields high. <laughs> uh, producer Mark, I'm going to let you answer this one. I read this email. I, what do you mean I'm stuffy and out of touch with the world? I don't get it. Or weary of the world. I, mean, I think they're just asking, is this the... I mean, uh, so can, I guess I have to give the real answer here. Yeah. But I wanted to give you a first crack. If you guys are asking if producer Mark that you hear is like the way is actually producer Mark, or if he's doing some... The answer is yes. He's at that's you are hearing producer Mark and this is how he is, right? My life is a shtick book. They're getting pure, unadulterated producer Mark is all we're trying to get to here. You're getting the real deal, folks. No additives, no preservatives, right, Mark? Yes, I'm organic all the way. Organic Mark all the way. That's all you need, folks. So there you go. So I guess someone's buying somebody some lunches here. Producer Mark, you're getting the real deal every day. I hope you're all team producer Mark and half of you are mocking me. I'm not really sure how this is working. 
Well, no, I, I think I think they're all on Team Mark. They just want to know if if Mark is a character or if Mark is really Mark. And I'm here to say, no, Mark is really yeah. Mark, guys. This is this is producer Mark. You're getting him, the real deal. Uh, and and just you know, when I, when I show up, you know, after doing five hours of radio many days a week, you know, the, the first thing I often hear from producer Mark is like, oh, you showed up for work today, because I'm usually a little bit late, so I a, kind of earn it, but none, none, nonetheless, nonetheless. That's where we are. As I've said before, Buck is the only human being who can be late to his own living room. It's pretty, there's, there's like 20 steps between oh, there wow. and the couch. So, 20. David. Hey, Buck. I've noticed nobody's talking about cryptocurrency anymore. I saw Bitcoin is trading at 7,500. The Dow is bobbing up and down, but pretty healthy considering the circumstances. I'm curious about your thoughts on why crypto, crypto isn't moving higher with all the uncertainty that exists. Keep up the great work. Don't let producer Mark beat you up too much. Um, David, I, I think that's a very good question about crypto because you would think that given all the money printing that's going on, as we know, it's digits on a screen. It's not really printing, printing money. But as we as that's happening and you have all of this uh, sense of, you know, where are you going to where are you going to have a store of value that's worthwhile? You have not seen. I mean, if crypto doesn't have a spike now, it feels like when is it ever going to have a spike, which makes me feel like it really was all. Like they were creating all these different cryptos. I mean, there was a scammy nature to some of it, for sure. Blockchain technology is certainly worthwhile and interesting and might have some very, very important uses as a technology in the future. But crypto, as you know, uh, I had friends who were saying, oh, crypto is going to go to 100,000, you know, a, a Bitcoin. Each Bitcoin will be worth $100,000. I'm going to be super rich. I'm going to retire on this. Mm, I, don't, I don't, I mean, look, I'm not giving you advice one way or the other. That's not what I do, but. Seems pretty dubious to me right now. Producer Mark, did you ever buy any crypto? No, I didn't have money back then. Yeah, I, I mean. I still don't, but. Yeah, but, you know, that's the, the crypto thing really felt a little bit like people were trying to just play in a craps game or something. Or, you know, it's, it's just gambling for a lot of folks because no one really understands it. And they just saw it going up and they figured I want to get in on this. But, David, it's a great question. I have not read a single good answer as to why. If crypto is not having a big move up now, when is it ever going to have a big move up other than what we saw, which was just a bubble, just like the tulip craze in the Netherlands? It, it just was a bubble where people were buying crypto. It's going up. So more people buy it because they want to get in on it. You know, classic herd bubble mentality. Mark writes in, Buck, on Friday's podcast, you mentioned you thought the debates would be better without an audience, but I disagree. You just know Trump will pull Tara Reid front and center in the audience just to rattle Joe, and it will be fantastic. Shields high. Well, Mark, you know, to each his own on this one, you can certainly prefer having an audience. Um, I think Trump is going to bring up the uh, allegations against Joe Biden and Biden's going to bring up allegations against Trump. So that's that's something else that we can expect. Um, but, yeah, I, I just don't like the audience making all that noise and, and kind of getting in the way and being annoying. So I, I, pr I prefer without. But you, if you prefer with, then that's fine. You know, tomato, tomato. Some people like chocolate ice cream like me. Some people like strawberry. You know who loves strawberry ice cream, brother, producer Mark? My parents. Uh, yeah, you've told, they, told that they story. With me. That's... Yeah, I can't believe it. They're, How are you related go, to them? Now I go over there and they're like, yeah, you know, we've got some ice cream in the fridge. I'm like, what do you have? They're like, well, there's the kind you don't like. And then there's a bunch of other things, but we got to check. Makes me sad. Haven't you what been buying their groceries? Do you like revolt and refuse to buy them strawberry? No, I buy, I'll get them whatever ice cream they want. I'm a all good right. son. I'm that, a that is nice son. of you, even though they're wrong. I'm good like that. Yeah, no, strawberry's gross. We all know it. But it's all right. Hey, to each his own. My mom and dad like strawberry ice cream. They're allowed to like strawberry ice cream, but they're still wrong. But I love them. 
Uh, Chad, Buck, the people are claiming to believe the president really meant to cure COVID. We need to inject the disinfectant are the same people that require the warning of hot liquid on the side of their coffee cups. The old adage, there is no dumb question, goes out the window with today's media. They prove that wrong every day. Keep up the good work. Shields high. Chad, agreed. By the way, everyone, check out BuckSexton.com. we got stories going up today. We have YouTube clips going up. we got all kinds of fun stuff. Make sure you bookmark it, BuckSexton.com. And uh, that's that's where the one-stop shop for all things Bucktastic. And we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place, Shields High.